Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. 10-second version would be Mike is writing to the Israelites. He's telling them, look, y'all messed up. God's mad, but down the road, someone from Bethlehem will be born to come fix it all. And I think that message is the same 200 years from now, 2,000 years from now. So I may not touch on all those things, but it's not because I'm changing Micah's message. It's because what I want to do is look within Micah's message, uh, what can we see from what he reveals about God's character, um, God's expectations of us specifically, that, that do still stand today. So that would be the big question we're answering what does God expect of us, particularly in chaotic times? Because we are in chaotic times. On a global level, it seems like we're on the brink of World War III any moment. On a national level, it seems like every day there's some new news story, something happening in D.C. where some Christian value is getting attacked, um, whether it should be or not, not the point, but it just seems like it's always happening. Um, but just maybe even in your own lives, right? A lot of the kids are going back to school, college, you're moving out. You just really want to know, you know, what should my response be? What should I do? What does God expect of me during these times? So let's look at that. Micah chapter 1. Um, and what I'll do is the first six, seven verses will probably just be um, lightning round, just kind of go through and explain them real quick, quick background, and then I'll really slow down, slow down around verses 8 and 9 and uh, I guess start preaching, as you, you may say. But Verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, this is basically our setup. We're just getting all the characters in play. We're saying the, the speaker is Micah. He's from this town called Moresheth. Uh, when did he live? When did he preach? During the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. For, simpl- for simplicity, we've seen that that's basically 700 BC. Um, what was he talking about? He had a message concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was um, in the northern part of Israel. Judah, Jerusalem, sorry, is in the southern part uh, of Israel. And he's basically referring to them almost the way we would Indianapolis and Louisville, right? He's re- referring to the capital cities because they kind of represent the whole area. So he's really he's talking about all of Israel, even though he may just say concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So what's the message? Verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the God, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Translation of that is, God's mad. That's what he's letting them know. And he used this particular imagery that kind of tells us just how mad, specifically with the mountains. In this time, in this place, in this region, the, the local god and the nearest mountain were always very closely associated, um, even to the point of they had this, this thought that the god lived on the mountain. And so whenever they want to build a capital city, where do you build it? You build it on the hill. If you want to build a temple, or altar, you go take it to the high places, kind of where God lives, his house and these things. And so the mountains were also seen as the strongest thing possible. They were the foundations of the earth because God had to live on it. And so you see this extreme imagery 
particularly tied to mountains. So if God's coming down from the mountain in anger, think of maybe your parents saying, like, hey, don't make me come up to that school. You know, if, if they're just coming up to the school to bring me something, that's great. But if they're coming up to the school because I'm in the principal's office, that's bad. And so they're looking at this, and if God's, I'm coming down from the mountain because I'm mad, this is, he's really, really mad. So what's he mad about? Verse 5. All this for the transgression of Jacob, that is, the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Again, we're hitting on this idea of the capital cities represent the people. And for that reason, the, the holy places in the capital cities represent the sins of the people or the righteousness of the people. In this case, the sins. So the punishment. Therefore, verse 6, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathereth them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So if you're, if you're looking for the next verse to get tattooed on your arm, verse 7 there is a strong candidate. It's a good conversation starter. Uh, but, so what in particular in history is happening here is one of those kings he mentioned, Ahaz, has, he's, um, he's gone out to a nearby country and looked for protection. And what he said is, hey, if you protect this, I will kind of bring in your gods into Israel. So he takes these foreign gods, goes up the mountain, goes in God's house, tears down those temples and puts up these pagan idols. And God said, this is basically like you cheating on me. This is as if you went out and hired a prostitute for a day. And that may seem harsh to us, but I think it's just the reality of what God actually thinks of sin. So, so then Micah says, how should we respond to this then? Verse 8 says, because of this, because all this that's going on, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Some serious howling. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah, and has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Right? So Micah is saying, though the temptation might be when someone is really messed up to be like, yeah, that's what should happen, or I'm glad I'm not like them, or they should be more Christian like me, he actually says, I'm going to lament. Uh, now, what does lament mean? I'm not going to be fancy here, just a dictionary definition. To mourn or show a passionate expression of grief or sorrow to mourn or show a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So he's making this point out that we sh- when someone, uh, our temptation might be when someone messes up, especially if it's their fault, that's like our license to treat them however we want. And he's saying, no, I think we should lament. There's an extra element to that that's found in verse 10. He says, tell it not in Gath. Do not weep at all. Now this has been said before. You have 2 Samuel verses 1 Chapter 1, verse 20 says, Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Now what's happened here is David is mourning uh, the death of basically his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan has died along with his dad, King Saul. Uh, and he's, he said, I'm upset about this. Two great people in Israel have died. And what I don't want to happen, those enemies, the people responsible for his death, to make fun of them. And you would think David would actually not care too much about Saul because Saul actually tried to kill him multiple times. But he does. 
So you take that idea, bring it back into Micah, and he says, do not tell it in Gath, do not weep at all. He's not saying, don't actually talk about it, don't cry for these people. He's saying we should not have this posture where when someone is going through, even if it's their own fault, even if what they're going through involves hurting you back, we should not be happy about it. Which is really hard. Because oftentimes, right, someone asks you for advice, you, you told them what they should do, they didn't do it, and now you're just like, that's right, that's what you get. Or they didn't ask you for advice, and you told them something they should do, and then you just want to sit back and watch it fail completely so that they come running back to you saying how they should have listened to your idea to begin with. Uh, or specifically here in this country, um, I was part of this as well in the last two years. Um, someone to get COVID, go to the hospital, sick. And you have one group of people like, yeah, that's what you get. You should have got a vaccine. Should have been wearing your mask. Or another group of people, the person gets sick, goes to the, to the hospital, and it's like, look at you now. You did all that stuff. You followed all those rules. And now you're looking stupid because you still got sick. And God's saying, I don't think that should be our immediate reaction to someone dying in the hospital. Now, that is not to say that it's, it's not wrong to help someone see the natural consequences of what they're doing. Um, but can we also take a time to lament even our own pride that we would take the opportunity of someone dying to lift up our personal beliefs. Say someone, they stole something, right? A crime. It's not saying you shouldn't desire justice because every Christian should desire to see justice. But also take the time to lament the sin of greed that someone would be willing to go steal from their mother. Saying don't be so quick to just be like, hi, that's what you get, that's what should have happened, I'm glad I'm like, like you, but take the time to lament and think about what sin can make a person do. And the truth is, we're addicted to sin, all of us. Different sins, right? I'm, what I'm addicted to isn't what you're addicted to, but often we, we like to act like ours, the other person isn't as good as us when that's the case. And think about any addiction, even if it's as simple as Starbucks, you know it's stupid to pay $5 for that coffee. <laughs> and you know it's not that good. But you do it every morning still. And you know it's not healthy for you. That's like two weeks worth of sugar in a cup. So just think about that. Any addiction, you know it's not good for you, whether it's health, financially, your time management, whatever it is, sometimes all three, and you still do it anyway. So just consider when a person is addicted to sin, like all of us are, yeah, they know they shouldn't have done it. But that's just like the power sin has over us. And Micah's saying, take the time to just lament over that. That's what the grip sin has on people. Now, how much should you lament? Right? So he's got this next part of the sentence, roll in the dust and Beth Lafra. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Now, a common form of lamenting in their time was to take ashes or dust and sprinkle it over your head. Um, and so he's saying, hey, don't just sprinkle the dust over your head. Roll in it. Like, really lament. Take, take grief in what's happening here. And this city in particular, what it meant was house of dust. And so he's, it's actually a wordplay saying, hey, you who are in the house of dust, roll in the dust. 
And if you look maybe down, let's get one. The next verse uh, says, the inhabitants of Zaanan, Zaanan meant to flock or go out. And so he says to them, don't go out. And so he does this all the way down for eight, ten cities from 10 verses 10 to 15. He uses the name of the city and what it actually means and then compares it to some form of extreme lamenting. And so it could be easy to just read this and be like, these are just random words. This is weird. I don't know how to pronounce these names. This is why I don't read the Bible. But it's really, it's not really what's going on. It's actually very purposeful. It's got a strong meaning. And if you want to go check it out, I think it's the message version breaks this down fairly well. Um, so you can actually see, see what he's doing here um, with this. So now, again, this isn't because he's not saying lament this hard for these people because they've been wronged. Right? It's not some, like something unjust has happened to him. Quite the opposite. Remember, Micah said, we know they did something wrong. In fact, they have made God as mad as I can even possibly imagine him put into words. He's having to come down from the mountain, and they're melting under him. It's not because they didn't do anything wrong. It's because he's saying, look, God's going to do the finger pointing. Our job, our expectation is that we will lament but we want that finger pointing job, don't we? We want it bad. We want the big, the foam finger you get at the football game. The, I really want to show you what you did wrong. Um, even to the point in our society where when it comes to maybe the death of someone we consider wicked or evil, right? Now, I get it on a practical level. There are some things that when you look out, it seems like this situation is never going to get better until that dude dies. It just seems that way. But if you think about it, if you truly believe that a non-Christian will go to hell when they die, then the death of a non-believer ought to be the saddest thing in the world to you. But we don't treat it that way. And quite the opposite. We're happy that someone's going to hell. It's like, it's like revenge for us. It's like, yeah, this is like the ultimate get back sometimes we can think of. And I would say one part of that, um, not one part, the number one part of that, whether you want to admit it or not, is if you're happy someone's going to hell, most likely it's because you don't think you are. That's the only reason why you'd really be happy about it, because you don't think you are. And that's our tendency to, again, separate someone, our sins from the next person's. You know, even if you admit we both sin, but the punishment for your sin should be life in jail. The punishment for my sin should be a sit down with the pastor. That's just how we look at it because that just makes total sense, right? And so Micah, he kind of addresses this. Again, if you were to look at these city names and put them on the map, what you'll see is a, the cities that they've listed. It's kind of hard because archaeologists haven't been able to pinpoint all of them, but for the ones they have, they start up there in Samaria where the problem is, and then it slowly works, the cities work their way down the map until they get to Micah's hometown in verse 14, 15, and Morasheth. And he reiterates the point he's making here in verse 9. He says, It has reached even Judah. It has approached the gate of my people as far as Jerusalem itself. He says, This is my problem too. It's not just in Samaria. Right? I think the idea is the expectation of us is that we would be a body. Right? We claim to be the body of Christ. We'll act like it. The problem that's happening on 91st Street just isn't 91st Street. It's not just on 71st, you know, 56. It's, it's right here at. 52nd Street, too. Micah's saying, see it. See yourselves as the body of Christ. It's not just 
the Lutheran's problem or the Methodist problem or if you do or don't believe in a literal seven-day creation or if you do or don't support abortion. He's like, if, if we're truly one body in Christ, we're all hurting at once. It's all our problem. We should all grieve and tell it not in Gath. Don't make fun of the others. Now, that's kind of, you see even a more extreme version of this in this case. Because, again, Ahaz was the one who had did all the stuff wrong. I'll go back up here. Um, yeah, so Ahaz was, so yeah, um, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Ahaz was the one who did all the crazy stuff. But in verse 5 and 6, it doesn't say the transgressions of Ahaz. It says everyone. And what's even crazier, the, the, the prophecy here in, in verse 6 that Samaria would be destroyed, it didn't happen during Ahaz's time. It happened during Hezekiah's time. And he was the one who actually reverted all that Ahaz done. He had built up, he was the good king. He had put all the, 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 uh, the altars to God back up because they were still a body, like they were the Israelites. So that's if someone else is going through. What about if it's you? Let's move on to chapter 6 here. We only do half of chapter 6. So what's ha- starting to happen is that the Israelites have began to start to blame God for their troubles, right? Because you're supposed to protect us. You did this to us. This is your fault. You're not really a good God. You're not really a loving God. It may sound familiar because we get in that mode. Um, usually the first thing that happens that doesn't go our way, we start to blame God. You're not good. You're not doing what you're supposed to. Um, we start acting like he owes us something or has done us some wrong. Um, and so God kind of said, I'll entertain this. I'll hear your, your case. Come tell me what I've really done wrong to you. So verse 6, nope, chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. So again, when he says plead your case before the mountains, he's not actually saying, like, walk up to a mountain and start talking to it. He's saying, plead your case before me, really, right? If you believe I'm the God of the mountain, we'll come here before the highest court, before the hills, plead your case. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And Sorry. Oh, you got... Thanks, Paul. Um, uh, Hear the, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. When you think about what Israel means, that last part's really saying he will contend with those who contend with him, those who wrestle with him, and you will lose that fight. Um, verse 3 goes on, O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Bear answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So he starts reminding him, like, hey, you all are, as a people, you're saying I've done you wrong. He says, remember all the stuff I've done for you. Like, you could still be slaves, but yet you're not. You're here acting like I've done you some wrong. And then he, he references an interesting uh, story, um, the story of Balaam here, which we'll look at. And in this story, there's a guy, Balaam, 
He's on a donkey. He's going to deliver a message that essentially is going to result in the destruction of Israel. God keeps it from happening by getting the donkey to stop what he's doing. And Balaam gets mad that the donkey stops, hits the donkey three times. Right? So this is what we got. Numbers 22. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey? I'm what you have ridden all your life to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. So God, he, in verse 3, he says, how have I wearied you? And then he references this situation just to kind of give them a picture of look how crazy it is of how you're treating me. Remember what happened with Balaam and his donkey. And all this was happening because I was trying to save you. So we'll do a little exercise and we'll go through, we'll rewrite the story, all right? Not in a blasphemous way, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> we're going to pretend Balaam is us. Yep, that's right. And the donkey is God. And I'm rewrite some of, this, some of these words. Um, so it says, then, then, uh, then the Lord spoke to us and asked, what have I done to you that you would not want to believe in me, that you would think I'm not a good God? And we said to God, because you've made a fool of me, because I got bad grades in school, and someone, and the person I was dating dumped me on Valentine's Day. I don't believe you're a good God, and if I could, I maybe would just stop coming to church altogether. And then God said to us, am I not your God who's woken you up 21 years straight, who gave you parents that got you that athletic scholarship to go to that college for free? Is it really my habit to treat you like I don't love you. And the reason why that person dumped you because I was saving you because <laughs> you don't need to be that with them anymore. And then we said to God, no. Truly, it isn't your habit to treat us like you don't love them. Now, I don't want to be insensitive. I do not think that when he mentioned the slavery thing, he's talking about a, a corporate thing. So if you're like, God, I'm, stress, I'm stressed out, I'm, I'm upset about maybe this death in the family, he's not saying back to you from heaven, well, you could still be a slave. When you're saying, oh, this problem's happened in my life, I'm trying to come to you, God, he's not saying, well, I woke you up, so you should be happy. That's not what's happening. Because he understands. He was here as a human. He has compassion even for the smallest things for us, Right? And he knows that some of the things we deal with aren't easy, permanent even. They're devastating. There's no, there's no redo. There's no second, you know, uh, you know, that person, that mom is gone, and it hurts. But take even Job's situation. You know, I don't, I don't know everything that's going on with everyone here, but I hear things, and I have yet to hear anyone who has lost as much as Job lost. But even Job, when he started talking a little crazy and tried to flip the situation on God like he had done something wrong, God's like, wait a minute, I stuck with you for 38 chapters. <laughs> look, and then crazy, look what he references. He's like, where were you when I made the mountains? 
the foundations of the earth. It's not saying you're wrong to complain or you don't have a place to complain or, 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 sh- or shouldn't, but he's saying the problem I have is when you want, act like you've done nothing wrong, act like your sin isn't equivalent to prostituting me out, or if you act like I'm the problem, that I, that I owe you something and that you, I was owed to you and I'm depriving you of this thing and therefore I am a bad God. He's like, now we got to talk about who I really am. Can you really plead this case before the mountains. Hmm. So maybe you decide, oh, good point, God. I'm going to turn it around. What do I do? Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, these are cultural ways of repentance. Please don't come in here with a goat. We'll have to have Officer John escort you out, and we'll, we'll keep the goat. And so then this, <laughs> so for us, this may be equivalent to, you know, you're like, what do I do to get back right with God? I'll volunteer at VBS. I'll, I'll just go to church. I'll, I'll, I'll read my, I'll do a year-long Bible study. I'll read the whole thing, my 365-day Bible. We try to get all these things to do to get back right. Verse 8, he's told us, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is not to say that he doesn't, he may not have other expectations of you, but he said, if you're looking for what I actually require, what's going to make me happy, what's, what I'm going to feel like you're actually following me, it's like, it's not this stuff. And this just isn't a Micah thing. When you look all throughout the Bible, any set of requirements, 10 commandments, the first five, what do you think of God? The last five, how you treat others. Do not kill, steal, don't covet, don't lie. It comes back to this, right? Are you doing justice? Are you loving kindness? Are you walking humbly? When you look at when Jesus says, when he proposed to the sorry, when the disciples ask him, you know, when did we see you? And he says, when you went to the hospitals, when you went to the jails. And Timothy and Titus, when he gives requirements for deacons and elders and preachers, they're almost entirely how someone relates to another person. Are you hospitable? Are you getting along with your wife? Are your kids little heathen children? Just continually point that out. One particular verse I like in James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So much stuff could have gone in that first thing in this list. So much. But he says to visit orphans. And widows in their books. There's more there, but for the point, I left it out. Now think about that. Oftentimes we'll be like, man, I've been going to church every day for 25 years. That's nice. When was the last time you visited an orphan? But he says, this, this is the type of religion that actually makes me happy when you're actually caring and showing compassion for someone else. Because ultimately what it is, it's honoring God because you're doing for others what he did for you. Right? We were in a vulnerable state. We weren't able to give God anything back. We were personally attacking him when he still showed us to show grace. And he says, well, if you want to know what I expect of you, 
well, this is it. Treat other people the way I treated you, which really takes away all the stuff we want to do and how we want to react to people. When you're trying to figure out God's will, often when we ask what's God's will for my life, we're pretty much asking, you know, three or four questions. Uh, what job should I have? Where, who should I date? And what school should I go to? And we kind of reword that as what's God's will for my life. And I think for a lot of us, if you were to ask God that question, he may ask you back, God, what's your will for my life? Which house should I move in? I think he would answer you back, I don't care what house you move in, but are you going to open it up to people? That's my will, that you be hospitable. What school am I going to go to? Doesn't matter. I'm going to give you a scholarship for whatever school you pick. But when you get there, are you going to be politically divisive and laugh at people when, they, when they're suffering instead of lamenting? Where should I move? What church should I go to? What job should I have? I'll give you a job. Oh, a lot of people can testify. God will give you a job. But when you get there, are you going to look for the downfall of your coworkers who disagree with you? Or are you going to be treating them the way God has asked you to do? And this is not for legacy. Remember, the destruction happened. He wasn't saying do this so that the destruction won't come. No, there was no nonprofit, no scholarship fund that would have gotten set up by Hezekiah or any of those other people in Samaria that would have lasted. The destruction was coming anyways. He's not saying do this so that you can keep yourself out of trouble, because then you're still just working for God's approval instead of doing it for his love. The destruction came. It's not for legacy. Even think about Micah himself. He preached for 30 years, and yet we got two of his sermons in the Bible, maybe two, two, three. So when you look at anything Jesus did, you may start noticing you go into the Gospels. He performed miracles, but one thing, one little sentence you'll see before a lot of his miracles, it says, and having compassion on them, he, whatever it was, fed them, opened their eyes, raised that girl from the dead. He was always led by compassion. And that particular combination of he had compassion and having compassion on them, it appears almost entirely with Jesus doing a miracle, except for two instances. One instance is the parable of the, who's that guy? Sorry, prodigal son. Lost it for a second there. Right? The, 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 the son comes back and the father goes out. Son had been acting a fool and goes out to hug him and says, having compassion on him, he went out to go receive him. And I'll tell you, if you know the story, 100% of what happened to the prodigal son was his fault. It's not about whose fault it is. If someone told them they should or shouldn't do it, if they were coming for you or not. That's the excuse we give. But the Bible says, if that was the valid excuse, God wouldn't have saved any of us. The gospel is not about this, this angry God who's just like, oh, I'm just mad at everything they're doing. I need to go kill them. And Jesus stops like, no, kill me instead. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God is looking at us and seeing the consequences of our action and where they're going to lead to. And Jesus saying, in order for, I love these people for me to be with them, I have to destroy death. So that's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go down. I'm going to destroy death. And then I'm going to usher in a new kingdom where there is no death. And I will be their God and they will be my people. If you have never heard this before, or heard it put like this, 
please come see us after service. God expects us to treat others the way he treated us. It's hard. We can do it with his help. Can't do it without his help. Um, You'll struggle. Um, But the idea is if the body around you is treating the situation the way they should, even when you're grieving, we'll lament and take care of each other. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.